Thanks for listening to Matt McLaughlin History. Become a subscriber to receive exclusive bonus episodes, ad-free listening, early access to all episodes, and special member-only events. Click on the link in the show notes or visit patreon.com forward slash mmhistory. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This is the Living History Podcast. Broadcasting live across the airwaves. I'm here in Mitchell in the ACT at the, well, the big toys storage area. I'm here with Shane Casey, one of the curators. I'm sure there's a much more formal term for where we're actually standing. Tell us about the buildings we're in, Shane, and, and what goes on here. Matt, we're in a, um, a dehumidified warehouse, basically. It's a storage area, and uh, it houses the reserve collection of the Australian War Memorial, um, material that can't be displayed at the moment because of space considerations at the main War Memorial building. Um, it's, it's a big cavernous warehouse, uh, one of a number that we've got here, and uh, we're standing in front of a, a German V-2 ballistic missile. Um, this missile is, um, is about 14 metres long, and uh, uh, it looks like a, a sharpened pencil, I guess, or <laughs> something like that. It's, it's white, and it sits on a, a big green uh, trailer that was designed by the Germans to transport the rocket and to put it into an upright position for launch. So this, this is one of Hitler's vengeance weapons, one of the first, well, the first ballistic missile that was fired on London during the Second World War. That's right, that's right. It's, um, when, when we look at it, we, we can see a number of different... Um, uh, contexts to it. On the one hand, it was um, one of the greatest technological feats that, that mankind had ever done to that, that point. The first time mankind ever entered outer space, uh, it, was a, it was a device capable of travelling at five times the speed of sound. But on the other hand, it represents, as you say, vengeance weapon. It's a weapon of war, a weapon produced by one of the most evil, toxic regimes that's ever existed. And we, we believe that more people died in the construction of these, uh, in their underground tunnels in the Hartz Mountains, you know, slave labourers, than, than were killed by the actual weapon being delivered. It um, was also a precursor to rocketry that led to the space race, wasn't it? So out of this, it's a fascinating chapter that out of the destruction of the Second World War came... The, the, the technology that would then be used to put man on the moon eventually in the 1960s. Yeah. Because a lot of the German scientists that built these then went to America and to Russia yeah. to work on the space program, didn't they? That, that's right. Um, very early on, the, the, the Brits, the Americans and the Russians um, scrambled over Germany um, trying to get this technology, trying to assemble it, find out how it worked, get those German scientists that you're talking about. And one of them, Werner von Braun, um, was, was taken back to America very early on by late 1945, and, and as you say, he worked on the Apollo space program. And uh, so the Saturn V that took people to the moon, um, 
used much of the same technology as this. The, uh, the combustion chamber, the way it was cooled, the, the fact that it was a liquid-fueled uh, rocket. Um, they, you can see the, um, the ancestor to the Saturn V in this missile. Why did the Germans have such a head start on the rest of the world in rocketry and, and this, sort of, this kind of technology during the war? Well, well, there was rocketry going on in America um, in the 1920s and 30s, but it, it doesn't seem to have ever really been pursued as a passion by, by the people. Um, there was a man called Goddard who was very active in, in America. Um, but, but Germany, um, in the 1920s, had a, had a very active uh, civilian rocketry enthusiastic sort of program going on. There were movies being made uh, about people going to the moon, and, and it seems to have fired the German um, psyche. <laughs> now, um, by the 19, early 1930s, um, you, you know, the Depression had kicked in. There was really no money for that sort of um, yeah, um, civilian rocketry program. Uh, but the German uh, artillery corps, uh, under a man called uh, Dornberger, um, recognised the potential of this as a long-range weapon. Now, long-range artillery had been banned under the Versailles Treaty, but not rocketry. And the German army picked up on von Braun and his associates, shepherded them in, gave them the world's best research facilities, and 10 years later, this is, this is what was produced. Absolutely yeah. extraordinary. Where did this particular example of the V2 come from? Um, so, uh, right at the end of the war, the, the British launched an operation called Operation Backfire. And uh, the idea was that they wanted to uh, assemble rockets V2s and, the, and the, the scientists who'd made them film the whole process, interview them, find out how it worked, and then launch their own. They assembled eight of the rockets. This is one of the eight that they assembled. Uh, they fired three of them and then um, basically didn't need to do any more um, trials. So um, this is one of those uh, five that weren't fired. It was um, uh, ceded to Australia. Um, back here in Australia, even during the war, the late war, uh, the V2 strikes and the V1 uh, doodlebug strikes w were being reported on in the press. And so people knew about these, uh, they called them robots. And, um, you know, <laughs> it's, uh, people were fascinated by them. Two of them came out to, uh, to Australia. Um, we've got both of the rockets. Uh, the other one is very fragmentary. You know, it, it had a hard life over the last 70 years. Um, but they toured around and um, people were fascinated. You know, there are photographs in the National Archives showing big crowds of people um, looking at these things and, uh, you know, the Nazi terror weapons. I'm not surprised. It's, it's such an impressive weapon. It's a wonderful piece of technology. Shane, we're standing in front of a aircraft. Looks like World War II era. What, what is this plane? What's the story? Yeah, Matt, this is a Bristol Beaufort um, light bomber. It's a twin-engined aircraft. And um, when we look at this particular one, um, we've got basically the, the wing tips and the engines have been taken off. But we'd only do that because it's space considerations. So we could really assemble this quite quickly. Uh, it's a, a Second World War bomber that was designed in Britain in, uh, and, and first flew in 1938. But uh, here in Australia, we wanted something that could travel across the, uh, the, the ocean wastes between, say, New Guinea and New Britain and attack the, the positions up in... Uh, Rabaul, and and this really hit the hit the money on that. We here in Australia, um, we didn't have a, a conventional um, 
car industry at that time, but, but in a very short space of time, we were, we were actually making fantastic aircraft like this that, um, you know, in factories here. So this is an Australian-made Bristol Beaufort. And um, what we're looking at is uh, twin-engined. Uh, it's got a, an upper, ta- uh, upper uh, fuselage um, gun position, and it was capable of taking bombs or torpedoes. And this sort of aircraft... Uh, took part in the, the Battle of the Bismarck Sea and strikes on Japanese positions all over New Guinea. Um, this one flew um, just over 100 missions. And then in January 1945, uh, after a, a strike on Japanese positions, it was coming in to land. It had a bomb hung up in the bomb bay. It couldn't release. And it, you know, it had tried to shake them off, it off and, uh, and failed. And so it came in for a really high-speed landing uh, with some minimal flaps and minimal brakes. But right at the last moment, they had to apply the brakes. And, and unbeknownst to the crew, there was damage to one of the brakes. And it, and it slewed off the runway, smashed into a building, and, um, and, and killed a number of men on the ground wow. in, in, a, in a jeep. And uh, anyway, the tail was completely ripped off. And so what you're looking at here as we stand here is um, the fuselage is all very abraded and worn and faded. And you can see a very clear delineation of, of that old paint and then a new tail. And so we've added the new tail from, from components. But what we've tried to do is, um, is show which bits are old and original and which bits are new. It's, it's sort of a conservation technique that um, you know, many museums employ so that you, know, you as, a, as a visitor know exactly what's real and what's been replicated or restored. That's a lovely thing. What's this here? I'm just noticing bits and pieces around. Yeah, yeah. The first Australian division. Yeah, and it looks like it's taken a bit of battle damage as well. So everything in here, theoretically, should have a a tag on it, like like this one here. And, uh, And this one must have a tag somewhere. Oh, here you go. Bronze plaque from the base of a wooden memorial cross at Pozieres. Um, so, so Matt, what we're looking at is um, is, a, is a plaque put up, presumably very soon after the end of 1916, to the men who were killed at the Battle of Pozieres. But it's also been then hit subsequently by um, artillery fragments um, over the, over the course of the next two years. I it's, can't. Um I can't begin to explain what it's like for a well for a war nerd like me to be in a place like this where everything you look around and it's not it's not on display it's just stored here. Yeah, it's just yeah. it's extraordinary. It's so amazing. And and right next to it, then we have uh, these are um, machine gun mounts from um, modern um, uh, Bushmasters. Oh wow! And uh, so these, yeah, Platt swing mounts. So Platt is a company that uh, operates in Australia. I think up in Sydney. Yeah where you are and um, and exports machine gun mounts all over the world and then that I think this is from a dugout a, a German dugout um, yeah it just says wooden stool on the tag but but this is from a there was a, a German dugout that was captured and then used by either Brits or Australians and at the end of the war the um, bean the, um, collected the whole infrastructure of the dugout and I think that this is from that. Fantastic. Just extraordinary. It's a very, very crude, <laughs> very crude wooden stool. I mean, you know, you and I could probably whip up something better. 
um, you know, you know, in about ten minutes. But it's the history. It's 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 yeah. what it represents. It's it's where it came from. Yeah, yeah, it's extraordinary. Very crude. And what about the bell? The damaged. Uh, let's have a look at the tag. I'm, I'm not sure myself. <laughs> That's a bit of a voyage um, of discovery. So Belgian Church Bell, 18th, 18th Battalion AIF. And what it is, it's a, it's a probably 17th or 18th century church bell with a massive um, artillery strike right through the, the, the top part of the bell. Forgive me for not using the correct terminology for bells. I'm sure, <laughs> sure there are experts out there who, who know. It's just extraordinary. Yeah. So we've got a lot of material from the um, Round Eep, you know, and anywhere where the, 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 it was smashed and... Um, Great. And, uh, it was, that was a really iconic uh, symbol for, for everyone that went to the war, but the Australians in particular, the smashed city of Ypres. Yeah. I mean, I, I think for Australian troops, they'd never seen anything like it. They'd never seen these sorts of towns, obviously, in Australia. Yeah, yeah. Plus, to see it in this state of ruin, it was... a. I, I think it, 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 from everything that I've read, it had a, a dramatic effect on the Aussies. And there was a lot of souvenir hunting and a lot of taking bits and pieces to bring home to try and just, just tell that story. Well, story. Australians have always been great souvenir collectors, I think. And, and when you, you know, the Red Baron, when he was shot down, his aircraft had to be guarded because the Aussies just, you know, went like, like magnets to it. And, and so we've got about 50 fragments of the Red Baron's aircraft that were cut into pieces about, you know, hundreds millimetres by 100 millimetres. So, Shane, the foal boat, the famous collapsible boat used by commando forces, by Z-Force during the Second World War. Yeah, yeah, Matt. Um, it's a, um, a kayak, a two-person two kayak. Uh, it's got uh, rubberized canvas and the whole thing, as you say, collapses down so it could be folded down into the, the hold of the Krite or, or a similar boat. Um, the Krite took seven of these on its big raid up to Singapore. And, and what we're looking at is something that's about, um, if you hold out your arms, you know, fingertip to fingertip, it's about, what, three of those. And, um, and the, the bit where the people sit uh, has a canvas uh, lace-on cover and there are paddles, um, wooden paddles strapped to the side of it. So this thing, it's very fragile it, and, and it, because, it, you know, these things weren't meant to last for 70 years as they have now. And uh, we've got a, a plastic cover over it to um, stop dust and whatnot uh, from uh, affecting it. It looks remarkably modern. I'm, uh, you, you wouldn't pick that this is World War II era. It looks like something. No. It doesn't quite look like something we'd build today, but I can imagine this from the 1970s or 80s. Absolutely. So it, it was probably quite futuristic at the time. Yeah, yeah. And people were using uh, old army ones, you know, in, in civilian life until they basically wore out. Uh, these days, I guess, you know, you wouldn't have the rubberized canvas. You'd have something lighter and more polymer based um, but uh, but this is very um, oh it's durable and it's, it's rugged probably last longer than the modern ones and representative of that early era of commando operations special forces which is now obviously so important today to, in everything that we do this is the, the, the earliest days of that, those that's operations. right that's right and there, there were Australians involved in the design and construction of these as well um, Slazenger you know who makes tennis rackets they, they were involved in the making of these um, it's, uh, so, so we use this sort of thing as, uh, as, as you say, representative of those commando operations. And, you know, there were a number of men who took part in those operations against Japanese-held Singapore who, who were captured and executed, and uh, we have nothing to represent their sacrifice. Are these items, Shane, um, rotated through the, ma the main building of the War Memorial? So are, are they always here and they'll always stay here or do, do they cycle through the main building? Yeah, no, good question, Matt. No, this is basically, um, it's, a, it's a storage and, uh, and um, um, 
storage repository for, for material that comes off display and that where we can also prepare material. So the fold boat that we're looking at now has been on display, um, uh, I think about a year ago. It was on display for, for about a year. Um, we rotate material through on a regular basis. Um, there are some items that have never been on um, full open display, such as the V2 on its, on its erector, because it's just too hard to move and it's too fragile and you, know, you need a massive space for it. Um, but uh, near us, um, we've got a, a, a vehicle that was used by General Morsehead in the Western Desert and uh, it's just come off display about a year ago as well and uh, hopefully will go on display. Next to it, just behind it, there's a, a thing that looks like a, um, <laughs> a green thing over there. Yeah. I don't know what it looks like, but it's a German battlefield observation post and it's in segments uh, that can be manhandled and put one on top of another. And it, it was on touring exhibition, um, uh, the centenary uh, exhibition that went around Australia. Okay. So lots, you know, probably a couple of hundred thousand people have seen that Fantastic. in recent times. Shane, talk about big boys toys. We're standing in a corner of the, of the room, jam-packed with artillery pieces. Mm. What, what am I looking at? Yeah, well, Matt, this is... Um, probably one of the world's largest collections of German, Turkish and Austro-Hungarian artillery. Um, it, uh, Australia uh, was right there at the end of the war, uh, First World War, and uh, we had a big program of, uh, of taking weapons and artefacts back from Europe and the, the, the Middle East to Australia to show people basically what our troops had been doing. And units who'd captured particular pieces of artillery were very, very um, determined to make sure that their thing that they had captured came back to their town or to the national collection. And at that stage, the Australian War Memorial wasn't called that. It, was, um, it hadn't really been created, but um, the idea existed uh, for an Australian National War Museum. And, um, and so many things are actually painted you know, for War Museum, uh, that sort of thing. Now, um, just standing in front of us uh, are, are some really big pieces of German artillery. And we can see one, for example, that has camouflage on it, but the barrel has been completely ripped apart. Uh, that one was captured in 1918, in August. Um, and uh, it's, uh, we don't know why the, the barrel has, has you know, been destroyed. It, it possibly the crew spiked the gun before it was captured to prevent us from reusing it, or possibly it was faulty uh, faulty ammunition uh, misfire or something like that um, and then next to it there's another one almost exactly the same um, now we know the histories of many of these weapons because the the troops in the field um, are required to take war diary or keep war diaries and so every day their activities their location the weather conditions are recorded but also what they did who they captured what they captured and, uh, and so many of these items are actually uh, recorded in those war diaries. And the one, uh, as, as we look at it to our extreme left, a, a grey 21 centimetre uh, howitzer, we know exactly where that one was captured because they also marked it on a map. We, we have people from the Royal Australian Artillery and the ADF who uh, periodically come and study these as a way of understanding their own modern technology. You know, you've, you've got to understand the basics, really, I suppose, before you, you, know, you move on. And, and so even just yesterday, we had a group of um, ADF personnel come and, and do um, 
seminars on these weapons. Just extraordinary. Um, so Matt, um, we've got a very important artifact here. <clears throat> it's a Japanese Shinyo suicide launch. And basically it's a um, two metre um, wide or in, in, in beam boat, um, which is about um, probably six metres long. And it's plywood, um, very crude construction again, and it's a, it's a speedboat. And the idea of this is that in the bow of the speedboat is a, an explosive charge. And uh, it was a Japanese suicide boat um, designed to ram into invasion craft and, um, or, or shipping and, and destroy them that way. Now, it was an idea that, if you remember, 19, uh, 2003, I think it was, in the Persian Gulf, the USS Cole got hit by a suicide boat, very similar to this, blew a massive hole in the side, 30 sailors were killed. The Japanese had the same idea back in 1944-45. And these were initially based around um, uh, the Philippines. And then as the war progressed sort of northwards, they relocated them. And uh, we recovered this one from Borneo. Uh, HMAS Deloraine uh, was there in Santa Can, 1945, came into the bay. And there were about 30 of these suicide boats all around the bay. And they picked... Um, the best couple and, and had a bit of fun with them, you know, um, using them as ski boats and, and the like. And this one was painted grey and taken back to Australia by the Deloraine crew. And then one, once it came back here, in, I think it was November 1945, the, the Navy directed the Deloraine to deliver it to us then. And, uh, and so it was, um, the, the grey paint was painted over again with a sort of a, an emerald, uh, British racing green, I, I guess you could call it. And, uh, and it's sat like that now uh, in that paint scheme um, since then. We know that underneath this paint scheme, um, we have excavated it a bit and we found the grey of the Deloraine and then underneath that, the original Japanese um, paint scheme. I remember as a kid when, I, when my dad used to bring me to the War Memorial and this was one of the, I remember this boat and it was yeah. one of the most exciting things as a 10 year old. That I could, that I saw in the entire in the entire collection, and it just it just it spoke to me then, and it speaks to me now about those desperate last days of the Second World War. I mean, I can't imagine this was particularly effective against Allied shipping. Like, you know, the, the Japanese were not going to win the war with this sort of technology. Yet, it just showed their desperation to do whatever they could to to take as many Allied soldiers and sailors with them as they could before the end. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And inside this boat, we found two armored armored vests. Um, with, uh, made from shingles of, of steel plate covered with a thin layer of leather. And we've got them in the collection. Um, but it shows that you know, they, they wanted to survive long enough uh, and, and to avoid being hit by small arms fire, um, just long enough to get in there and, and, and blow the vessel up. But as you say, they weren't that successful. They, um, I think there are about 13 or 14 vessels that were damaged and a few smaller um, landing craft tanks um, sunk as a result of this but no just imagine the i mean what a what an end to your life strapping on crude armor plating to avoid getting shot up by machine guns and and getting one of these and ramming it into the side of a ship just yeah, yeah. i mean obviously extreme courage but also that fanaticism that defined especially those last days of, yeah. of the japanese empire just a, a, that's and that's what this represents that's why it's so important to have artifacts like this because in one object standing here you can tell that entire story through this piece of technology. Just a, a wonderful thing.
What about some of the motorbikes we've got here, Shane? There is a small motorbike here called a well bike. And um, uh, this was designed in Wellham City in, in England and where all of the um, special operations executive, the sort of the cutthroat commando type equipment was designed. And so anything that was designed there was given the, the prefix well. So there was a thing called a well rod, which is a, like an assassin's gun, you know, one shot thing. And this is a well bike. And it's a tiny little bike, um, the sort of thing that um, is actually coming back into vogue now. You see people on pavements riding these sorts of scooters and things. So it's about the size of a scooter, and the whole thing folds down and goes into a capsule and is, is deposited from an aircraft with paratroopers. And then once you hit the ground, you find your canister, open it up, and, and, and you, know, you can rejoin your unit because... You know, as you know, in Normandy and Arnhem and whatnot, the troops were just scattered everywhere and you know, it took days for units to kind of cohere. Well, it's a novel solution to that problem you have with airborne troops. Airborne troops are fantastic at being inserted in specific locations, but once they're on the ground, they're totally immobile. And this is, yeah. these are the problems we saw in the great airborne operations, is that you'd land airborne troops, and even if you landed them on the right spot, they just couldn't move around once yeah. they were there. And so just the novel length they yeah. were going to to try and solve this problem. Yeah, yeah. But I think as it turns out, this particular type wasn't that effective at that. The, um, the wheels are tiny. They're, they're, what would you call that? Maybe 300 millimetre diameter tyres. It's just um, pretty useless at going across rough ground and whatnot. Um, so as it turns out, it wasn't widely used during the war. But it was an interesting attempt to get around that problem. I love what it represents more than probably what it achieved. Yeah, yeah. It was a time that both world wars were a time of this extraordinary technological experimentation. And we know that with the Second World War, we've just seen a V2 rocket. We've you know, seen collapsible motorbikes and collapsible boats, but also the First World War as well. The, the, the technological advancements that, that began in 1914 and, and happened in only four years. Absolutely extraordinary how weapons, aircraft, tanks, the, 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 the range of improvements that were made to technology in that time. It's unfortunate that wars typically always seem to be these great prompters of technological advancement. This is our attempt to stop pest um, infestations. Okay. So, um, so basically there's a, that's a nitrogen um, unit there that pumps the nitrogen into these alfoil bags and um, because um, the bar bugs, um, in insects, um, go for wool and silk and cotton in particular. Um, they don't touch synthetics, really. And we have a, an awfully large collection of textiles and, uh, and fur as well, you know, things like the Red Baron's boots. Um, insects just love that. And so we have a program um, of constantly going into the, the main building where the things are on display, opening up the showcases and inspecting them. Um, every, every month you know, we do that for every showcase and minutely inspect it for frass and little you know, insect shells and things. And whenever we find anything, and we hope you know, we don't find anything, but occasionally we do, that gets taken off and we either freeze the object and kill the uh, insects that way, or if it's too fragile, we put it into these big... Um, uh, shiny foil bags, and we've got a few in front of us here, uh, and then pump nitrogen into the, the bags and leave it for about three weeks. And the staff that do this are conservation, conservators, and they wear special monitors, uh, oxygen monitors, because you know, the, the nitrogen's 
deadly if it, <laughs> you know, if something went wrong. And uh, but it's it's been successful as far as we know. But it's a constant, constant problem, um, and it's largely because showcases have to be somewhat porous, air porous, and uh, but also members of the public. You know, we're getting a million million people through the institution every year. They bring stuff in. We can't avoid it, and we can't, you know, hermetically seal every storage area. It's just impossible. So it's a constant battle. Great. Excellent. What about the train, the locomotive? Yeah, yeah, down here, um, we've got a Hunslet narrow-gauge locomotive. Um, now, this was designed and manufactured in Leeds, in England, and specifically for the war effort on the First World War. Um, you had big broad-gauge or ordinary-gauge um, locos coming across from England, being transported across on channel ferries, special ones, and then they would shift men and material and ammunition, food, water, etc., uh, to within, say, 20 miles of the front, front lines. And then you'd have craft like this taking over. And these travel on 60 centimetre wide, or, or I should say the, the rails are 60 centimetres wide, between each one, of, one another. And, um, and the, the train travels on prefabricated panels that uh, a team of, say, 10, 20 men could lift and carry and put down in place um, without having to individually put the sleepers in, in place. And you didn't need all that much ballasting either. The, the, the loco is quite light. And these things then would take all the men and material and wounded to and from the, the front line. It's great to see this because when I've been on the Western Front, you often come across remains of old tracks and, and on maps it's marked that this was a, tra a, a light rail line. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's actually great to see the, uh, the, yeah. the loco that was running. It's small. It's a, yeah, very, little, yeah, it's a yeah. very little thing. Yeah, they had an enormous number of locos. And we had, uh, in Australia, we had broad gauge um, uh, loco uh, operating teams and, and narrow gauge um, teams as well. And we would recruit, sorry, I'll get out of the way. We would recruit men specifically from the you know, New South Wales and Victorian railways. And you often, when you look at their service records, they go from being recruit on, you know, Sunday to uh, being a sergeant on, on sort of Friday because they, they're just really experienced loco operators. So Matt, um, this is an interesting item. Um, it's a, uh, a long metal pole on a two-wheeled wooden um, sp spoked wheel uh, carriage and it's, uh, it's, it's basically it's a German mobile battlefield periscope. And the idea is that uh, in the, the, the flat terrain of France, northern France and Belgium, uh, this thing would be erected behind the German lines and um, you would winch this telescopic pole up as high as you could to about 25 metres in height and then peer through it, peer through the periscope much the same way as a, as a submarine periscope would be used and uh, to observe the, the British and Australian and French um, lines. And um, I've often wondered just how far you could see with one of these. There used to be one of these in the Imperial War Museum in London that poked through the ceiling, and you could see the city through it. Um, I, I suspect that in France you could, you could see an awfully long way. On those flat Flanders plains, yeah. I imagine you'd be able yeah. to... Um, this would, well, observation was essential on the Western Front during the First World War. We know that, that the... the the side that could see the furthest could shoot the furthest and and it's again remarkable the innovations i mean everyone who's listening have a look on the facebook page where you'll see photos of these things because 
extraordinary bits of kit standing in front of this. It's just bizarre. It's like something out of a space novel. It's just, it's like a, it's like a Jules Verne's craziest creation. Yet they were pressed into service. They were, they were coming up with these inventions, these new ways of doing things to tackle very specific problems. And, and this one was built in 1917. So it's, uh, I've heard people say, oh, you know, this is uh, outmoded technology that we had aircraft and aerial reconnaissance and whatnot. But um, to put an aircraft up requires an awful lot of fuel and resources and uh, it's, you're at the mercy of the weather. And, and the of risk course, of being shot down. Absolutely, yeah. And this thing had none of those uh, risks to it. So many artillery pieces. Yeah, they, they kind of... At first glance, they all look the same, <laughs> you know, and, and that, that was my, I suppose, first reaction. But when you start drilling into them and uh, looking at either the, the context or the, the particular battle that they were involved in, or even just looking at the damage on some of them, you can start to see the, the individuals. These are, are binnacles from some of Australia's earliest um, craft and, and some really important ones. Um, one of the compass housings from HMAS Parramatta, the very first ship that ever entered the Royal Australian Navy. And uh, we have artefacts from captured in Iraq. There's an improvised uh, rocket launcher mounted on a basically a wheelbarrow chassis right next to German artillery pieces captured in the Western Desert, uh, 1941, next to a, a recoilless uh, rocket launcher captured in uh, Vietnam. This is a very interesting object, this one here. It's, uh, it's a gun mounted on a pedestal, it's painted grey, and it's a German artillery piece that was captured at the Battle of Messines in 1917, and it's still got the German markings on it, but it's been taken back to Woolwich in, near London, in London, and, um, and modified slightly to uh, make it suitable for mounting on a, on a surface craft, a naval ship. And um, the, the British were doing this with um, trawlers and merchantmen and disguising them as a, as a weapon against the U-boats, which were at that stage you know, threatening the, the very existence of Britain, really. And um, the idea was that uh, you'd camouflage a ship to, to look like it was a, a fisher, fishing ship or a trawler, and, um, and then when the U-boat got close to it, flaps would come down, uh, camouflage covers would take, come off, and the, the crew of the ship would, would open fire on the submarine. And these were called Q-ships, and, um, and some, of the, uh, some of the really heroic Victoria Cross actions of the First World War were, were fought on Q ships that were sinking. They'd been hit and torpedoed, but the crews just kept hidden until the U-boat got close enough and then the flaps would come down. And, you know, sometimes people were being killed all around the crews and they just sat there and took it. We're standing in front of um, the, the rear portion of a Japanese... 18-inch um, long lance torpedo, and this particular torpedo was one of the ones fired by uh, one of the midget submarines during the attack on Sydney Harbour in 1942. And um, we've got the, the compressed air tanks and the um, and the fuel, and then the uh, the motor and the engine there at the rear. And you can see in the the rear um, motor segment that uh, all the metal casing has been um, sort of crushed in on itself and that was as a result of being dragged out of the water um, by um, you know, cranes and, uh, and it's just you know, crushed the, the metal. But so this the, was the one that ran aground on Garden Island? That's right. As the, after they were firing at the 
Was it the Chicago? I'm trying to remember. The Chicago. The Chicago, the American ship that was in the harbour. And of course, one of them exploded under the cutterball and and sank that ferry with a a lot of soldiers and sailors on board. Yeah, yeah. Who were the main casualties of the um, midget submarine attack. But that is the actual torpedo that the Japanese fired during the the attack on Sydney Harbour. We we do have the... um the motor from the, the one that actually sunk the Cutterball, it's on display up in Sydney with the um, uh, Royal Navy at the moment. Uh, but it, it was also a very, very significant and historic piece. Uh, there's a tag attached to it that was written in 1946 by one of the armourers. And he said, um, almost writing for posterity, he said, it's really unusual to get a torpedo or any fragment of a torpedo from the ship that it sank because most often they're, they're sunk in deep water and you know you just never recover the thing or, or the, the torpedo gets destroyed in the explosion. So we're looking at a, a Russian howitzer here and this particular one was captured in Afghanistan and it's, um, it was brought back to Australia uh, in the mid 2000s. Uh, it was captured in 2005 and this one was um, used by members of the Royal Australian Artillery before they were deployed to Afghanistan to familiarise themselves with the, the Russian technology. And so it would be um, uh, craned up out of place into, a, into a, an open area. The trail would be spread out and the uh, RA, Royal Australian Artillery um, uh, officers would, would come and, and train on this before they, they went to Afghanistan. So there are many, many still in all across the former Eastern Bloc countries. Um, and next to it, we've got a couple of uh, German Brattenwerfers, a German trench mortars from the First World War. It's just a, right. it's every era displayed here, side yeah, by side. Yeah, and you see these all over Australia. These um, German um, trench mortars—they're they're often in parks and in front of RSL clubs. Um, Australia captured a lot of this sort of thing. Um, the Germans had three different types: they had a light, medium, and a heavy. We're standing in front of a heavy mortar, which is um, 24 centimeters in, in diameter caliber and uh, a very very simple device on a on a steel platform able to fire at a very high trajectory and you often read in world war one diary accounts about the screaming minis or the, the flying dustbins or flying pigs they called them and these are um, the german trench mortars which which threw these enormous projectiles towards the trench lines with devastating effect really they were greatly feared but these things could be mounted on wheels, uh, very, very portable, but horrendously heavy, the shell. We've got a number of items that have never been displayed outdoors and still bear their original coats. So one is a a Japanese anti-tank gun that still bears on the front of its uh, shield, great Nippon Empire, you know, it was a sort of propagandizing sort of thing. And the one uh, that we're standing in front of right now is a a German anti-tank gun, uh, five centimeter anti-tank gun, and it's, it's got its original Africa Corps Western Desert paint coating on it. But you can see where Australian soldiers have scratched their, their initials. So we're looking at NX2760. And, um, and if you go on the National Archives website, you can look up that number. We've got another one, QX. So in the old days, if you were from Queensland, your service number was QX. If you were from New South Wales, it was NX. There's a VX here. And I'm sure there's an SX from South Australia and there's TXs and all that. And then there's also a picture of a German tank painted on there by someone and a, and a can opener. So the analogy being that this, this weapon is, is, is like a can opener to a, to a tank. 
And there's the, uh, the German swastika, oh, just, nice. just painted there as well. So Matt, this is um, a lot colder, as you can feel, less well insulated. This is the first building that was built on site to, to store artifacts. And it's probably going to be um, the one that we take down first, uh, because it's really not too modern standards in terms of um, museum conservation. Um, but, at, but at the moment, what we try to do is store the more robust items in here. I love that smell. That's the museum smell. You come in of it. We, we, museums are losing that a little bit because there's not yeah. so many artifacts and things on display. Yeah, there's yeah. more touch screens now, but yeah, uh, which I don't that know. smell of oil and dust and yeah. cordite and yeah. it's, a, it's a wonderful smell. Anyone who's regularly visited military museums will know exactly what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah. But um, a room full of tanks and vehicles, basically, mm. we're looking at. Mm. Mm. Yeah, we've got, we've got Centurion tanks in here that took part in uh, operations in Vietnam and uh, there's some Second World War material further on and, and then we've also got Af material used in Afghanistan. Um, we've got uh, up here on this, we've, we've got um, German pontoons that were captured on the Western Front. Um, painted with a sort of a rudimentary camouflage scheme there. And uh, just underneath it, the uh, Caterpillar engine from a uh, Bushmaster uh, protected mobility vehicle that was destroyed in Afghanistan. We've got the, the vehicle from which that came um, in another part of the building. What are these artillery shells here, these massive shells? These are the um, French. Uh, they're, they're railway artillery shells, the largest shells that would have been fired by any combatant during the First World War. So they're 520 millimetres in diameter and uh, fired from massive railway guns. So these were every, every nation in the First World War, or largely every nation on the Western Front, had um, the uh, massive railway guns that were mounted on, um, on massive carriages. And uh, the French went uh, one step further than everyone else and, and made these massive 520 millimeter ones. They only made two of these guns. One of them was pretty much destroyed right towards the end of the war. And the, the second one was captured by the Germans when they invaded France in 1940 and taken to the Eastern Front. But these two shells are um, two meters long. They've still got the original French paint on them and stencils. And they've got um, big copper driving bands, which are protected by wooden girdles. So the driving bands um, seal the, the shell into the, into the rifle barrel and impart the spin on it. But they're very, very delicate and so they needed to be protected with those, um, those wooden girdles there. So we've got a lot of artillery shells here. Some of it's been sectioned, cut down through the middles and, and that's, some of it was used as, as training aids back in the day for the artillery people themselves. Um, some of the material um, was, is in a half-machine state, and so it, it looks as though the, the people at Meribunong who made it um, were using these uh, items, again, as training aids for their own staff. And much of it came to us you know, when the war ended. Um, but it's a really good collection of First and Second World War and, and modern artillery. Uh, I, I think it's quite interesting that we've got a a Matilda tank next to a Centurion tank in that the Matilda tank saw service right from the start of the war, the Second World War, to the, to the end. You know, it was still in active use by Australian forces up in uh, Borneo, right at the end. And next to the a tank that would have been in use by, say, December 1945, if the war had continued. 
And so you can see right next to one another the, the juxtaposition of old and new technology. Um, you know, very much faster, just aeons better in terms of uh, crew protection, um, gyroscopically uh, controlled gun, you know, all that sort of thing. And these were used in Vietnam then um, very effectively. This thing here doesn't look like much, but it's a very thin sheet metal tube with handles. It looks a bit like a dustbin, and it's uh, about a meter high and 450 mil in diameter. And for a long time, it, it evaded description. We didn't know what it was, that the tag had long since fallen off. And it was only recently, this year, that we worked out what it was. And um, it comes in a number of parts. There's a canister that fits inside this dustbin-like device. And there's a big ball, which is, again, um, 400 mil in diameter. And, um, and this ball fits in the top of this dustbin-like thing. And it turns out that it's a German uh, smoke generator captured wow. in 1917 at the Battle of Messine. And the people who captured it, the 6th Battalion AIF, painted their, their unit on the front of this big ball. And it was only by really seeing that that we could work out what this thing was. Uh, because we then looked at the records of the 6th Battalion and found that they had indeed captured one of these items. And then we found a British manual on smoke, German smoke apparatus, uh, which illustrated this. How does it possibly work? So um, it's, there's, there's a, a pot that fits inside the the main tube, and the pot has quicklime in it. Then um, the, the big circular ball has hydrochloric acid. Uh, you would take the cap off the hydrochloric acid, use a big stick or handle to, to tilt the ball. That would pour into the quicklime, and it would just produce a massive, really opaque smoke cloud. Wow. Um, really, Sorry. really effective. Uh, once again, visit the Facebook page to see photos of this because that is a really remarkable piece of First World War technology. Very rare, I think. Well, as, soon as, as soon as we saw the battle damage, you thought, oh, it's got to be captured. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> and, right. um, Front line. Yeah, yeah. And um, probably German. Um, you know, it looks First World War-ish. It's the Japanese. Yeah, Very small yeah. tank here. Yeah, Type 94 tankette. And um, so it's a two-man crew... Uh, very light reconnaissance vehicle and um, circa well, 1934 uses um, British technology for the running gear designed to, um, to just provide a modicum of protection for, for a, a reconnaissance crew it's got a machine gun um, a machine gun mounted though in the in the turret and um, this particular one um, or this type was used very effectively by the Japanese in, in Manchuria all through the late 1930s, uh, couldn't really. You know, it's not an armoured fighting vehicle, really. Though you know, it couldn't couldn't do anything against a modern tank. Um, it was captured. This one was captured in Balakpapan, and you can see in the underneath the current paint surface. Oh yeah, just here. And if you look at an, at an oblique angle, you can see where people have scratched there. Oh, I see. So NX TPR trooper. So New South Wales trooper. TJG, and he's written the date, um, 4th of, the f of March 1945, Balak Papan, Borneo. A couple of Bushmasters there? Yeah, yeah. We have uh, two battle-damaged Bushmasters, 
One's called Battered Sav, and, um, and one's called Debbie. We've met the crews of these uh, vehicles. They were both uh, destroyed in Afghanistan. And uh, if we look at uh, Debbie here, for example, um, so the Bushmaster is um, Australia's current protected mobility vehicle. It's got a V-shaped hull, and you can see the V-shaped hull very clearly on this example. And the idea being that if a, an improvised explosive device is detonated on the side, the blast will be diverted off to the side and uh, all of the side panels is designed to be sacrificial and just and blow off. It's very thin light material. This particular one uh, was, uh, was destroyed in 2012 and uh, we've, we've met the driver and interviewed him as well as some members of his crew and we've, we've got photographs of the aftermath of the incident. And uh, this, we, we use this to, as an example of uh, Australia's efforts in Afghanistan, and, but also the manufacturing um, um, task and, and research and development that went into trying to protect Australian lives and, and exported to Dutch and Japanese. I do like the, um, the new focus on the memorial of telling the more modern stories as well, because it's, it's something that I talk to people a lot about to say that history doesn't necessarily belong in the past, that these chapters are still being written, the Anzac story is still being written. And as you say, that's a wonderful example of, um, of, of the modern combat conditions and what our, our men and women have been through over there. So some things like this, this uh, APC here, would be um, tracked by us. You know, we, we send curators into the field now to places like you know, um, Afghanistan, Iraq and whatnot, uh, try to photograph items being used in the current, current situation try to speak to the crews, uh, do interviews, but we also try to track then their equipment. And so we do that with aircraft and, and, and tanks and whatnot. And uh, this is an example of one where we became aware of this particular number, 134192, and uh, it's, a, it's an armoured personnel carrier, M113, and it had extensive service in Vietnam. And then in 1994, it was sent to Rwanda as one of the four APCs that went there. It was painted completely white with UN markings. And then in um, the later part of the 20th century, it was sent to East Timor. And, uh, and that's the colour scheme that it wears right now. And so it had a you know, very, very extensive overseas operational service. And that's the sort of thing that we, we like to get. It's still all very scuffed, you know, all the paint's chipped off and it's got... Um, unit markings on it and it's got bits of corrosion and bits of paint here and there. It shows wear and tear in a way that you know you can't replicate if you try and paint it up. I like yeah. that. The, the preservation of that history is important because I think after the First World War, Second World War, there was a lot of bringing these things back and tarting them up, yep. giving them a new paint scheme, making them look good, good as new yeah, yeah. and you lose so much history. That's much better in that salty condition with paint scratches and yeah, graffiti yeah. on the side. Yeah. That's what we want to see. Yeah, yeah. So Shane, we're standing in front of, um, well, a dismantled aircraft, but one of my personal favourites from the, the relatively modern era, the P3 Orion, um, which have all just been retired in the last couple of years. So obviously essential that the War Memorial has in its collection a representation of this very important aircraft that served for a long time now. Tell us about this aircraft and why it's important that it's now part of the collection. Yeah, well, uh, Matt, it's, uh, it's a massive thing. And as you say, dismantled. So it's, it's really quite hard to get your mind across uh, just what we're looking at. But uh, big, massive grey fuselage, um, four-engined aircraft with a, 
a long um, proboscis on the end, the magnetic anomaly detector. And this aircraft, uh, it's an American designed aircraft, designed by Lockheed, um, flew for, oh, 35 years or so with the RAAF. Uh, it, it was a, very much a Cold War aircraft, flying long, um, probably very monotonous um, uh, observational and uh, surveillance missions over the Indian Ocean and the Pacific, looking for Russian and Chinese submarine activity. Very much a Cold War warrior, and we, we like to, to tell that story with it as well. Uh, but also involved in um, search and rescue operations. You know, you, you remember all those... Um, Episodes involving yachts, people in the in the South Where Atlantic, Bullymore and Ortizier, people like that. But then this aircraft was also the the first RAAF aircraft deployed um, to the Middle East in the in the recent conflicts, and um, and as well uh, then flew extensively from 2004 onwards um, over Iraq and Afghanistan. And this particular one then ended its operational uh, combat service uh, over the Philippines during the Battle of Marawi. It uh, was one of the two that, that did that operation. So extensive uh, operational uh, service. Now, um, it's sitting in um, our, our newly constructed uh, aircraft warehouse, um, specially designed with a, a new type of reinforced concrete floor and uh, that's thin and, and light but super strong. And the building doesn't have any interior columns, so it, it just relies on these overhead trusses. Um, the aircraft is in parts, uh, largely for storage, but as we walk around the, the nose of the aircraft, we, um, we see the wings have been taken off and they're uh, on, on pallets. Um, this is a very temporary measure. We've only had the wings for about oh, two weeks, I think. We've had the fuselage for about three and a half weeks, so it's, it's very new. I haven't been inside the, the craft yet. Um, and here we are standing um, right next to the, um, the wing route, and you can see right through the aircraft. It's actually, you know, for a student of avionics, and it's actually quite interesting in its current state. And we do have um, ADFA periodically come, the aircraft engineering people, and uh, with students. And they love it when things are like this because they can then talk about aircraft structures. And uh... it's so, remarkable. It's remarkable to see it in pieces. I, I understand that it's only for storage, but it's remarkable to see. I've seen plenty of these assembled. Yeah. Uh, but it's great to be able to get up this close and, um, and see the components. So this is um, a Deperducin trainer. It's Australia's oldest military aircraft. Wow. Is that pre First World War? Yeah. Yeah. So this is um, 1912 and uh, came out to Australia in 1913. Um, we had a team of two people in, in England who were tasked with going around and buying aircraft for the, um, for the Australian government, and uh, this is one of the ones that they purchased. Uh, so Depa Ducin was a, was a Frenchman who, who had uh, a silk importing business, and he was mad keen on aviation, and this is you know just eight years after the Wright brothers, and um, he was... He was buying patents and uh, buying the equipment and designing material himself. But anyway, he fell foul of the authorities when he started to embezzle his client's money. He was imprisoned by the French government and then um, there was a massive court case. He was sentenced to five years in jail, but it was commuted because by that stage uh, his patents and designs and things were being used in SPAD aircraft. 
and uh, but he was a broken man by this stage and his wife had left him and he was bankrupt and disgraced and sadly he, he ended up committing suicide but um, this aircraft though is um, it came to Australia was used down at Point Cook I, I don't think it ever really was um, terribly successful as a as a flying aircraft but it was used then as a taxi taxi trainer um, and but then by 1917 was well and truly uh, obsolete. And Rudimentary is the word that is a, a, applicable to this yeah, aircraft. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, it's check all... the photos on the web on the uh, Facebook page because it is a very basic piece so, of flying kit. The the, the wings were um, didn't have um, ailerons. They they just used wing warp technology, where you, you pulled a lever and the whole wing kind of flexed, and the whole thing's just wire and wire and pulleys and timber. Lots of timber. Uh, this is a, quite a significant aircraft. We're looking at a, a bare metal aluminium fuselage. Looks like a passenger aircraft. It's got windows along the side. And uh, it's, a, it's a Japanese hickory twin-engined aircraft. And this one was used to transport Lieutenant General Baba, the commander of Japanese forces on uh, Borneo, to his surrender at, uh, Balak, uh, at, at Sandakan. And um, when, it, when it came in, the aircraft was painted in a sort of Japanese uh, squiggle, green squiggle camouflage. And they, the big Japanese national marking, the Hinamaru, the red meatball, as it's sometimes called, was painted over with a big white cross. And that was the, the you know, international sort of uh, recognised way that the Japanese aircraft had to surrender. And it came in. We photographed it on the ground. And the crew all came out and were photographed. Lieutenant General Barber was photographed coming out of the aircraft. Anyway, subsequently, he was um, indicted for his part in the Santa Cam Death March and was, was executed the next year. But the aircraft, we, we don't know what happened to the rest of it. Uh, we've only got the, the fuselage. But it ended up at Fairburn uh, RAAF base on the children's playground there. And um, unfortunately, it had really bad asbestos, friable asbestos inside. And we've only just this year removed all of that and made it safe. Um, but when we were doing the asbestos removal, and we had uh, a private sector company do that for us, they found inside a, um, a Colt uh, Peacemaker cap gun and um, you know, buttons and all sorts of 1950s ephemera, um, which I, I think actually would make quite an interesting little display in itself. And it's, it's as far as we know, I, I've heard that there is one in Beijing, a fuselage, about the same standard. I've never seen the photographs of it, but a, a hickory was found in a Japanese lake about oh, four or five years ago, virtually intact, and they, they made a really hashed abortive attempt to drag it up with you know, cables and things and, and just cut the, the aircraft in part and just destroyed basically what they had. So this is um, very rare, I think. So this is a, a Bell uh, Sioux helicopter, um, similar to the type that you know, people have seen on their screens watching MASH, the little bubble, bubble helicopter. But actually, this is a Vietnam-era one. And uh, it, um, this one was involved in a, uh, a mine incident in 1967. Uh, 5 RAR, Royal Australian Regiment, was involved in a, an operation uh, in South Vietnam. And their armoured personnel carriers uh, one of them hit a, what we would now call an IED, an improvised explosive device. It looks like it was an American dropped um, 
airborne munition that had been uh, found, didn't go off, and the Viet Cong had booby-trapped it. One of these armoured personnel carriers either hit it or it was command detonated and you had a, a number of deaths in the APC. And then um, the other armoured personnel carriers went into a harbour around this APC, were treating the wounded and then they triggered a landmine ambush. So the Viet Cong had very carefully seeded the whole area with these M16 jumping jack mines. And uh, so the casualty toll just went through the roof and, uh, you know, it was just pretty chaotic and um, help was called for. This particular aircraft was nearby and uh, Mankel Campbell flew it in repeatedly over the course of the day. Very rough terrain, the possibility for a Viet Cong attack, exposed landmines, you know, the, the risk of sympathetic detonation um, was, was profound. And anyway, he, he rescued you know, many of the wounded and took them back to a clearing station nearby and won the Distinguished Flying Cross as a result. So I, I look at this aircraft as, um, as, as um, epitomising what the War Memorial should be doing, you know, preserving something that's really um, quite significant, an action involved casualties, um, courage, and whatnot. And it's also used by then modern soldiers from 5RAR, you know, young guys, 20 years old or whatever. We can tell them a, a bit about their, their regimental history with this and, and I'd like to think that they kind of can take a bit of pride in this object as well. Absolutely. I love that there's both sides of the story. There's representation. There's, there's various aircraft that are representative of, of, of chapters of military history. There's items that are representative. But then we've got something like this that has, in itself, has a story to tell. It's yeah. just, I, I love what the War Memorial is doing with these artefacts. Got a German Enzian anti-aircraft missile. Um, tell me about that. Yeah, so, oh, okay. This, well, this is, this is a really interesting piece of technology. For a number of reasons, um, it's um, a bit like the, the V2 rocket. It, um, it was the forerunner to, to modern anti-missiles or ground-to-air launch missiles. Um, what we're looking at is a, a wooden fuselage, um, which has been made from spruce timber, coopered together a bit like a barrel. And it's, it's a very rudimentary structure, very squat, fat thing. And... Around the perimeter of the object are these big, long, two-metre-long um, metal canisters, which are um, solid-fuel boosters. The idea is that um, this was designed right at the end of the Second World War. Germany's basically losing the war. It's getting hammered day and night. RAF, RAAF and USAF, USAAF aircraft are flying over Germany, dropping... 3,000 tonnes a day on Germany and they're desperate for some sort of means of combating those aircraft and of course Germany bizarrely had all these fantastic aerospace technicians and you know they really were at the pinnacle of sort of aircraft technology and this is one of the the results of their technology um, it's a liquid fueled rocket um, but it's taken off the launch pad by solid fuel boosters. So if you, if you remember the way the space shuttle used to take off, it, it was powered up into space by um, these solid fuel boosters that would then detonate and fall back and be collected again. This is the same. So it takes off the launch pad with these solid fuel boosters. Five seconds later, explosive bolts detonate, they fall off, and then the interior engine kicks in and uh, liquid fuel and takes it up into the bomber stream. 
Now, in, once it's near the American and British and Australian aircraft, uh, an infrared homing system would kick in and you'd then detonate in the bomber stream. There's only two like it in the world, this one, and there's one at um, RAF Cosford in, in England, and, um, which is slightly different. So it was captured, brought back to Australia, studied, and you can really see the, um, the Bloodhound anti-aircraft missile that was used by the British and the Australians in the 1950s and 60s. Is, is, this is the ancestor to that, pretty much. The thing that I always find fascinating, Shane, about the Nazi technology, especially something like this, is it was really, it was unrefined. It was the crazy idea. They had the concept right. They had the idea that we could fire a missile. Instead of having to send planes up to shoot down enemy aircraft, we can fire missiles up. So they had the concepts were well ahead of their time, but they just didn't have the technology to keep up with it. So this was a, like a, a strange bridging technology between an incredible and accurate concept yeah, yeah. about the technology of the day. But, so I, I love seeing things like this, the jet aircraft, the, yeah. the ME-262, the, yeah. you know, the, the V-2 rocket that we've seen. They had the future concept correct, but yeah. they just didn't quite have the technology. And so they made, they made the best they yeah. could of it, yeah. and they came up with absolutely crazy things like this. It's yeah, extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. What a wonderful Yeah, a wonderful well, we know that this successfully um, was successfully launched about 60 times or so, uh, but it, as far as we know, it was never operationally fired. It's wearing at the moment a quite a spurious paint scheme. This dates from the, probably the early 1960s, and um, you know, one day we will probably excavate this and, uh, and, and try and go back to the original paint scheme, which, which might be underneath this. This is one of the first guided missiles, I guess you could say. Uh, it's, a, it's a German device, first used in September 1943. It's got underneath, so it's very much like a model aeroplane in that you could guide it uh, by remote control from an aircraft. And underneath, there's a, there's a canister containing two fuel sources that, when combined, produce you know, massive propulsive thrust. It's a Henschel uh, HS-293, and um, first used in, in the Bay of Biscay against uh, British ships. And, and subsequently used against um, ships off Anzio and Salerno and, you know, that whole Mediterranean, um, Bay of Biscay sort of area. It was then used aircraft trying to attack the invasion flotillas off, um, off Normandy, uh, carried these unsuccessfully, as it turns out, because by that stage, six months later, we already had a su sufficient um, capability for jamming the radio transmissions. The scientists who developed this, again, picked up in Operation Paperclip, taken, shipped over to America, and uh, you'd see the sidewinder missiles, you know. The same people who designed those were involved in this. And indeed, if you look at our helicopter collection, um, most of our helicopters, or many of them, are powered by Lycoming engines, which were designed by a man called Anselm Franz, who was the guy who was responsible in large part for the ME-262 engines. And a Herc. Yeah, yeah, tunnel and boat. So this one, this is a C-130H. Um, this flew in a number of really interesting episodes where they were uh, at, the, at the early stages of developing uh, night vision technology. So there was, a, there was a coup in Cambodia. This aircraft had to fly into Phnom Penh and there was a, a hold-up for some reason. You know, more refugees had to get out and really bad monsoonal thunderstorm. They had the, the early stages of this night vision technology, but they weren't fully functional and uh, this aircraft flew in under terrible conditions and into Phnom Penh and, and picked up an enormous number of refugees and took off and whatnot. And then later on, 2004, 
he was involved in an episode in, uh, involving the 82nd Airborne uh, where they dropped a number of 82nd Airborne troops. Um, they landed to, to drop them and a Humvee left and collected part of the uh, a longeron at the back of the aircraft. And um, you know the aircraft's on the ground, there's firing nearby, they've got to get back and out. They had to fly very low and slow and uh, you know with basically you know gaffer tape sort of rig on the back. Um, really, really dicey situation. But uh, so this one flew extensively, you know, in Afghanistan, and we're only ever going to get this much of the aircraft. We got the nose, but uh, only the forward part of the fuselage. The rear part is um, is being used by the RAF currently as a loadmaster training uh, apparatus. the The reason where we're not getting the whole aircraft is because the um, C one thirty Hs are or a C one thirty H is being preserved uh, at, at the uh, Point Cook Royal Air Force Museum, Royal Australian Air Force Museum. And so we, um, we see this museum or the memorial as part of um, a collection is part of a distributed national collection where there is stuff all around Australia. If someone else has something big that is costing the government money to preserve, then we don't necessarily need to have it unless it's you know, super significant. So we've got Gloucester Meteor. Uh, the front part of that is on display in the galleries, um, but this is a first-generation uh, jet fighter, the first operational jet fighter that the Allies had, um, uh, powered by du Rolls-Royce Derwent engines. We're, we've, we've got the wings taken off and everything, but it's silver and it's sort of very 1950s, late 40s, 50s of itself. Um, this particular one is a Gloucester uh, Meteor Mark 8 and saw service in Korea. And... Uh, as, as far as we know, took part in a number of actual combats against uh, Russian MiG fighters, um, which is, is lucky because we, we're standing right next to a MiG-15, uh, or part of it. We've got, we've got the whole aircraft, but again, it's disassembled for space reasons. But this is um, a second-generation jet fighter uh, that the Russians fielded in late 1950, and based on a German design that they'd captured the plans for. And... Um, and this was um, when, it, when it first appeared over the, over the conflict area in uh, Korea, was more than a match for the Gloucester Meteor. But in a very short space of time, the Americans fielded their F-86 Sabre. And, um, and, and I think our or American air crews were, by this stage, uh, a lot more experienced at jet combat fighting and, and were more than a match for the, the MiG pilots. But this one um, is a uh, you know, Russian-produced MiG of the era. We don't know the exact history of whether it actually took part in combat in Korea, but it's, it's very much a type example, but you can see the, uh, all the Cyrillic uh, stencils and whatnot on it. Brilliant. So good. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. Fantastic. Welcome. Absolutely loved it. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.